All right. I'm going to read Luke um, chapter 2, if you'll read with with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, and will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to to them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the truth of this story and what it means. How over 2,000 years ago, born in a manger, you came and you embraced humanity. You came, you embraced flesh. Help us today to better understand all that that means. Help us today to grasp the reality of the demonstration of your love, your commitment to us. We need your help to do that. If you're here and you have a faith in God, I'd ask that you please take the next 10 seconds and pray that God would use this time to strengthen your faith and to grow in appreciation for this Christmas season. Man, if y'all would please take another 10 seconds and pray for me. Pray that I would be helpful. Pray that I would be useful to the master. Lord, we love you, we thank you, it's in your name we pray, amen. Good morning, y'all. Well, hey, before we get started, let's get David a round of applause, man. It's hard coming up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way to go, brother. Like, I just love doing that, bringing folks up, starting with reading of God's word, because what it does is it sets the backdrop. If you were here with us last week, here's what you know. 
We've started a new series through this Advent season called Songs of the Season. We're taking a look at classic Christmas carols, these songs that perhaps if you grew up in church, you've sung for decades, you've sung for years. And what we're trying to do is look at these songs, these pieces of poetry mixed with melody, these pieces of art, and see behind them, where's the holy word that inspires these songs that we sing? The goal of this series is as we sing these songs this year or as you sing these songs in the future, that when you do, these songs pop, these songs come to life. And that's why I'm excited today. We're going to look at a classic song, Hark the Herald. That's what we're going to be today, looking at Hark the Herald. If you're with us last week, we looked at the song, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And we talked about how it is this beckoning call to come and to adore. But what I love about this song today, Hark the Herald, is how much it has to do with you and I, not necessarily the emotion behind the reality of the Christ child being born in a manger, but the relationship, what it meant for salvation. The way I want to start with this, though, is kind of unpacking a little bit of the background. This song, it was written by a man by the name of Charles Wesley. Anybody here ever heard of John and Charles Wesley? Anybody grew up Methodist in particular, right? Okay, that was me. Huge heroes, huge fans of them, tremendous story. So these guys were born about 1720 in a town called Epworth in England. They were born to Susanna and Samuel Wesley. They were two of 19 kids. Like I've known some families that have like 12, 14, but I imagine about like 19, 20, like you're just giving numbers. Like you've passed names it's just numbers and like the whole reality. You know how people talk about like older kid syndrome, baby syndrome, middle kid that's just lost in the whole mix and is screaming for identity the rest of their life. Like the way we put that on people, right? I imagine this family, there's like pockets of like, okay, maybe John, because he's six years older. And then there's like the middle kids, but then there's like the third act kids. And then by the end of it, I imagine Susanna, like the mom of them all is like, oh dear God, Right? And John's like, what, am I, what, what are we going to do? Just stop? I don't know exactly what went through his head, right? But all these kids, but both John, six years older than Charles, Charles is the author. They go off to Oxford. Oxford was the university there, created ministers, pastors, preachers. They go and they do religious studies. John goes on. He goes into ministry publicly, all this kind of stuff. Charles is following in his footsteps. While Charles is there at Oxford, he creates something called that he called, excuse me, a holy club. It was a group of people who believed in Jesus Christ. And the way he describes it, all this comes from an autobiography of his, or excuse me, a biography of his. The way he describes it, it was meant to be a group of people who believed in Jesus, who were gonna commit themselves to the Christian disciplines, to serious Bible study, to prayer, and the way he describes it, charitable works. Charles was the leader of this. He kind of stood out on campus, and there were these other people that started to make fun of this holy club. And Charles got this nickname. It was meant to be negative. It was meant to hurt him. The first nickname that he got was Methodist. This holy club informally, mockingly became to be known as Methodist. A few years later, after John had been traveling, his older brother, he came back, united with his brother Charles, joined the holy club, and he came to lead this group called the Methodists. Here's what's fascinating, though. 
Fast forward over the next 15 years. Charles, the author of the hymn, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Born that man no more may die. He goes into public ministry for the next 15 years. Telling people about Jesus. He's preaching about Jesus. He's teaching about Jesus. He's raising up churches about Jesus. He's helping ministers for Jesus. He comes to a point where he takes this missionary journey to America. He gets on a, on a boat with his older brother, John, and they go to Georgia. It's on this journey. They're going there to bring this good news, this Christmas tidings. Christ born, Christ died, Christ resurrected. He's coming again. Went to bring this news to Georgia. While they were there, both John and Charles had a tremendous crisis of faith. They came to this point where neither one of them really felt like they knew God personally. They came to a point where neither one of them felt that they had the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. They came to this point where neither one of them was assured that they were really Christians. They viewed it at that point as their ministry in their life had been deceiving. They describe it like a failure. They got on a boat and they traveled back to England at the end of this journey. They were on this boat with this other group of people that had gone with them, Morovians. They were led by a man by the name of Peter Bowler. I'd never known Peter's name till this week. I will never forget the name Peter Bowler. Peter led this other group of people. While they were out at sea, this storm came. They thought that they would die. There was the response of John and the response of Charles, and then the response of Peter and the people. This man who loved God, who feared God, who trusted God, who walked with God, who knew the presence of God in his soul. And it was there, Charles and John said, that's different. They still lived in the fear of death. Peter didn't have that in the same way. They came back to England and they started talking to Peter every day. And they started to have these conversations. One of these conversations, Charles, he recorded his theme of it in, in this diary of his. I'm gonna read a section of it to you guys. It's a conversation between him and Bowler, the, the leader of that group, that faithful group. They'd been missionaries, raised in a Christian home, went to Christian seminary, sent out on Christian mission, traveled across the world, realized something's wrong, I don't think I know God, came back on this boat, saw how godly people respond. And he's coming and saying, can you help me? Bowler, he asked Charles, Charles, do you hope to be saved? Charles replied to him, of course I do. Peter responds, Bowler says back, for what reason do you hope to be saved? One of the things we do here all the time is we ask these diagnostic questions. We say, if you were to come and you were to stand before God and God were to say to you, hey, why should I allow you entrance? How would you answer? That's exactly what Bowler did to Charles. Charles responded with him, because I have used my best endeavors, my best works, my best charitable acts to serve God. Summary, because I'm trying to be good. Charles reports, Bowler, he just shook his, set, shook his head and he said no more. I thought him very uncharitable, saying in my heart, what? Are not my efforts to please God, are not my endeavors sufficient ground of hope? Would God rob me of my works and my endeavors? Charles writes, I have nothing else to trust to. Fascinating, man. Grew up church home. Went to seminary. 
led public ministry, went on a missionary across the ocean, came back, realized, I don't know, comes back to England. And what does God have him doing? In a crisis of faith, God says, no, no, no. You are not yet ready to sing, Hark the Herald. You don't yet know the full glory of the newborn king. You, you haven't yet grasped, Charles, that I was born, that man no more may die. Not through your endeavors, not through your efforts, not through your works, but by faith. That same year, it's the 21st of May. It was Pentecost. It was Sunday. It was on that Sunday that Charles writes, it was the day of my conversion. Charles says he felt the spirit of God striving with his spirit till by degrees God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. What was Charles's problem? The one who would come to write, he wrote over 8,000 hymns about Jesus. The one who would come to write over 8,000 hymns about Jesus. The one who would come to, with his brother, help found a revival of the church that would over time become what we know today as Methodist. He said what changed his life was when the Spirit of God chased away unbelief. What did he need? Not good works, not good endeavors. Faith. He says, I found myself convinced. And he says, I now find myself at peace with God and rejoice in the hope of loving Christ. Here's why I start with this. Do you know Hark the Herald? He trusts Christ in May. Fast forward, you get to Christmas time, right? December 25th. Christmas didn't have the same association in England at that time as it does here, but it was still recognized, it was still honored as a time to commemorate the birth of Christ. That was when he wrote this hymn, within the first year of coming to know Jesus. He's writing this hymn that he originally titled a hymn for Christmas Day. And this hymn carries this theme. And this is the theme that we're going to talk about today. The theme of this hymn in different sections, different stanzas, different categories. But the theme of this hymn is born that man no more may die. It's the reality that by faith, Jesus Christ came to free us from death. When you say this with crowds, a lot of times when they connect the born that man no more may die, they can tend to think like, wait, wait, people still die. Believers in Jesus still die. No, no, I have a sick uh, family member with, with illness and they are dying. No, death is still real. What, what he's speaking to, what Jesus has come, is he's removed the sting of death. He removed the reality that the grave is not the end. There's a life after this and there's a promise of goodness in life. He removed the reality of ultimate death. And then he removed the reality that in this life, you and I, we will still have troubles. You will have mountaintops and you will have valleys. God assures you of both. But in the midst of that, the reality that born that man no more may die, we'll see it speaks to not just death after life, but abundant life. I'm so excited today to look at Hark the Herald with you guys and study this theme, this resounding chorus that's going to penetrate throughout, born that man no more may die. The first stanza, we'll see this where it talks about, why is that true? Like, like how, how do we know that? How, how do we know that? You see that in the first stanza where it talks about, born that man no more may die because we have the peace of Christ. The second, it's the pleasure of Christ. 
And the third, it's the purpose of Christ. To set up again where we were, the song, if you remember, it starts with hark, the herald angels sing. What it's doing is we read through Luke 2. If you were tracking with that story in the narrative, Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem. The baby is born. They're shepherds out in the field. An angel appears to the shepherds telling them the news of the birth of the Savior, and he sends them to Mary and Joseph. It's in that moment that with that angel, this choir of angel appears, singing glory to God, peace on earth with those with whom he is well pleased. This song, just like O Come All Ye Faithful, it puts you right in the context of singing with a choir of angels. The word hark, it was old English for, hey, listen. It's this calling, listen. What was a herald? A herald was a messenger. This hymn is joining the choir of angels in coming before humanity, you and me, by saying, hey, you must listen. God has sent angelic messengers to tell you of this news. There's a newborn king. For the longest time, man, Christmas to me was just this tradition, this theme, baby born in a manger. It's like this neat thing that honestly, when I stopped and talked about it and thought about it in my head, I was like, this is ridiculous. In a manger, we like set out things and then Jesus isn't there. And then all of a sudden Christmas day, he shows up and it's this miraculous act and it's supposed to mean something. I can remember just thinking, this is ridiculous. I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. That night, that moment, it means everything. So let's look at this first stanza of Hark the Herald. Let's look at this to see, born that man no more may die. It starts out, and I'm going to read it through. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. You got to remember this. God and sinners reconciled. How do we respond? Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph. We win of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. As we look at this first stanza, and we get this theme that's going to run throughout, born that man no more may die. The first theme that we're going to pull out of this stanza is the peace of Christ. It's the peace of Christ. You see, it's, it's this wonderful call to peace that's responded to by a chorus of joy. You see, it start here, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. One of the things that, that happens, and we should all be thinking this way, when you read your Bible, you should read critically, thoughtfully, engagingly with God. If angels come and say, peace is here, you must ask the question, does that mean we were once at war? If peace has come, does that mean there was once strife? If there is a cease to arms, was there once battle ready? The answer to that is yes. I'm going to look at a section that I've always appreciated, always loved. It's out of Colossians 1. It's verses 19 through 22. We'll have it up on the screen. And it talks about the peace that Christ came, why Christmas matters 
but nor to the grasp of the peace. And this is not a popular message. You must understand that we, apart from God, are at war. Colossians 1, 19 through 22, for in him, that's speaking of Jesus, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Tremendous verse, by the way, for this is why Jesus Christ was always God, forever God will always be God. And through him, to reconcile, why did he come? To reconciliation, all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, how did he do it? Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Remember the song, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. What's true is apart from God, we are without hope. Apart from God, we are in need of the love of Jesus Christ. How did he accomplish peace? By blood on the cross. One of the things that's true is Christ. He would have known this. His older cousin, John the Baptist, one of the first times publicly he sees Christ. If you grew up or you know this language, you would know the way he introduces him. He says, behold, that's my older cousin, but he describes him this way. Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. You know what John the Baptist knew? Born in a manger, would die on a cross, would rise from a grave to take those who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and not just give them unity. That's why I love this. Like what peace really means, making peace by the blood of his cross. Sometimes we think peace means, okay, man, we're all good, but there's still that awkward tension. You know that because Christ came and by faith can give you peace, you know what it means for you? That you are holy, that you are blameless, and you are above reproach before who? God. There is not a single person on this world that their view of me is that I am holy, that I am blameless, that I am above reproach. Definitely not my wife, not my community group, right? Not, not members of the Springs, not my three-year-old little daughter. But because of Christ, peace means holy, blameless, above reproach. That, that's why you come and you connect the reality. If I was once apart from God and now I've been united, and what does that evoke? Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the sky. I love how it speaks to nations because it's connecting back to Luke 2. This will be good news of great joy for who? For all the people. The reason I think Charles chose nations is, man, this is not just for New Braunfels. This is not just for Texas. This is not just for America. This is for this world. This is not for just 2019. This is for all people of all time because it speaks to, it doesn't matter who you are where you were born, your education, your wealth, your background, your skin color, what you vote for, where you live, the language you speak, the customs you grew up in, it does not matter who you are. And then it speaks to, it does not matter what you've done. 
like the broken parts of you or the reality that you've been singing Christmas hymns for decades, yet you do not come and you do not adore. Yet you have walked with faith and yet you've neglected that to where on the inside, if we were to come and meddle in your soul, perhaps much the same way John and Charles wrestled with, do I even know God really? There's more confusion there than ever what God would intend for you. But because he came to bring peace, that means there should be joy. After I trusted Christ, I went on a uh, mission trip to Africa. I went on this mission trip, and the whole premise was you just go, and they drop you off in these villages in Africa where no one had heard of Jesus. And you go there with a translator and a church planter. This church planter was part of an African church planning network. So your whole goal was to go tell people about Jesus and then connect them to a church planner who was connected to a church planning network so they had a network of care, support, and discipleship. I can remember going, I'm exhausted, it's this long plane. You get in this van, I'm with a team of five people. I drive up into the mountainside. I get dropped off, translator, church planner. And I can remember I get dropped off and it wasn't even a road literally a muddy trail. And you just were supposed to walk for six hours and tell people about Jesus. I'd come to know Christ not long ago. I went on this trip to try to learn how do you tell the Christmas story. And I can remember walking down this trail and there was this woman within two minutes, this woman with her daughter. I knew why I'd come. I'd been too scared to share my faith back in Dallas. That was where I lived. And so I wanted to grow in that. And I can remember there's this moment of, man, I'm either gonna come all the way and tell somebody or I'm not. And there was this pleading heart of just say something, John. So I went up and they taught me all the customs and all the, the ways to be polite. I introduced myself, speaking through a translator. I appreciated the fact I could interrupt them, have a conversation. And I set it up, hey, would you mind if I tell you a story? It's a story-based culture where we went. And I tell you a story. I told them three stories. The story of the Christ child born in a manger the story of Christ dying and raising from the grave. And then I told the story of what that did in my life. I can remember standing there, this woman, she must have been, it's hard to tell exactly with age, right? She may have been 40, I would have put her like 60, right? I can remember looking at her and at the end of this, asking, have you ever heard this story? No. Does any of this story ring true to you? And there was this strange like hesitation in her of like, yes. Do you believe this story? And this nodding, yes. I didn't give her anything. I gave her no food. I promised no gifts. I promised no support, no nothing. And it was in that moment where by God's grace, I believe that that woman was led to Christ because of the spirit of God in her. Here's what's amazing. I'd lived in Dallas for about nine months. I'd made believing friends, non-believing friends. I'd had non-believing friends for a tremendous amount of time in my life who grew up same background, Southern, generally kind, right? Culturally Christian, educated, went to school, tried to study, had a uh, median level of income varied across. I had all these things in common, right then and there. And God knows, but right then and there, on a trail in the middle of Africa, I had far more in common with that woman. Because here's what we both had the peace of Christ. 
But in that moment, there's the realization of what Christ came for me, he came for her. Born that no man, no more may die. A unity with him. God and sinners reconciled. All people, joyful, all the nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. The reason he came was so that you and I would have life have it abundantly that man no more may die. And the first way that we see that as we're reminded through the song is he came making peace. Where did that peace ultimately end? Christmas always points to Calvary, the cross. You cannot separate the two. But the next part we see, if that's what he's done, next part I'm excited to see the stanza, talks about why he did it. I'm gonna read this next stanza. Christ by highest, heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, and remember this, pleased is man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. As we continue looking at how this hymn is meant to be a call. Born, why did he come? Born that man no more may die. If last time we saw there's peace, God has reconciled sinners. The only prerequisite to being a Christian is acknowledging you're a sinner. Y'all track with that? That's why Christians who are self-righteous, it's very confusing. P.S., that's all of us. Why? Because he had to die for you. You still sin, and Christ came to free us from bondage to both. But the second thing that we see here are titled, The Pleasure of Christ. The Pleasure of Christ. A lot of what this second stanza is doing, it's, it's doing what we talked about last week. It's connecting Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It's talking about last week, we addressed this this theme of the hypostatic union. It's the truth that Jesus Christ came as fully God, and he came as fully man. Not partial God. He didn't lay down his godness and come embrace full humanity. He's God, a very God, at the uh, beginning of eternity and at the end of eternity. Always God, yet he fully embraced humanity. He was fully God so as to live a righteous life and to die a death on a cross that atoned for everything. But he's fully man so as to empathize with you and me and to die in our place. If if you want to learn more of that, you can go and, and listen to last week where we addressed it more. But the part that I love, this line here, is is why, right? There's many reasons why Christ came to die. The resounding theme of this entire song is glory to the newborn king. But in one of the aspects where it's this resounding chorus to Christ's glory is this theme is because he was pleased to do it. Pleased is man with man to dwell. He was pleased to do it. Have you ever thought about why he went through with it? Like there's the moment where in heaven before he comes to be born in the earth, there's the moment at the foundations of the earth where he's gonna come on behalf of the people. Why? Jesus knew that he would suffer. Jesus knew 
that the people he came to save, you and me, we'd curse him. Jesus knew that his disciples, the one he's invested in, trained up, given his life to, he knew that they would scatter. He knew that for our sins, he would be forsaken by his father. He knew that so you and I would never face God's anger, God's wrath, that he would. He knew that the cross would lead to such righteous anxiety, he would sweat blood. He knew that at his birth, angels would sing, shepherds would come, magi would walk, and at his death, people would scatter and we would yell, crucify him. So why did he do it? He was pleased to. I'm gonna read two verses. Hebrews 12, verse two is a beautiful verse. It's talking about you and me. It says, hey, you and I looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and it gives us this glimpse into why, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What this is literally saying is what was Jesus' motives? Right, Jesus came And as he looked forward, he saw the cross. He knew he was coming to the cross. No one surprised him. No one took his life. He laid it down. He saw the cross, but he saw beyond that. For the joy that was before him, that joy is you. That joy is me. That joy is the history of God's people to promise his inheritance to God. Do you think that when God looks at you because of Christ, he feels joy. There's a verse in in John 17, 25 and 26. That's where I'm gonna read next. It's this famous prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus talking to God about us. You get a complete insight into Jesus talking to God about us. And he does two things here. Verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And I know that you have sent, and these know that you have sent me. He talks about people who believe in him, those who actually believe in him. And then he says something in verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Sometimes I sit with folks and you ask them questions, and I say, hey, can I ask you, right? And this is with people who believe. So if, if you don't believe, you can participate in this exercise or not. And I ask them this, hey, how do you think God feels about you? How do you think he feels about you? A lot of times if they like grew up in church and they know a little bit about church, they start listing off the things they know they're supposed to say. He loves me, I'm forgiven, all that kind of stuff. And I say, okay, but is that really how you think that he feels about you? like how he emotes, his emotions towards you? Or do you think there's something else? And far too often where that goes is, okay, well, if I'm honest, and I know I'm not supposed to say this, but if I'm honest, I think God's disappointed in me. I think that I'm God's letdown. I think there's this general sense of just get it together. I think that he sees the fact that I'm I'm trying, but he knows that I'm not really trying. That when he comes to me, I'm like his repeated version of a failed New Year's resolution. Come on, John. 
And then I read this verse. Part of the reason that Christ came was what he would secure. Where this verse, you read it with me, you said, okay, what does Jesus come to secure? Why was he pleased to do it? Because he says, hey, God, the way that you love me, I want you to love them. And then I, to guarantee the deal, I'll be in them. And then I ask them this question, how do you think God feels about Jesus? And that's where it's fairly easy for people to be like, Jesus, man, he's the one where God's excited, he's delighted in, like he looks at him, he says, that's my boy, I'm proud, that is Jesus. And there's like this legitimate excitement, like the same way when you come and you talk to a parent and they're having a child. Like there's the difficulty of it all, but there's just this hope and real joy that's not manufactured, it's not intellectual, it's of the soul. And then when they they display that emotion, I then say, do you see that Jesus Christ came and died to secure for you and to secure for me that the way God feels about him, God would feel about you? Does that mean God can't be displeased at our sin? No. But that means that because, and it says there, I am in them, that when he looks at you and he looks at me, there's the same sense of pride, excitement, and joy. Part of the reason that Christ came to be born that man no more may die was because he was pleased to. It was his good pleasure, but he was pleased to because he loves you. Part of the reason when you sing this song, when you come and you have these false, unbiblical, self-deprecating thoughts of I'll never change and I don't know if God really loves me and God seems far off and God doesn't want to help me and how could he? And you do all of that. There's no glory in any of those thoughts. None of it is holy. All of it is unbiblical. All of it is false. There's no spiritual maturity to any of it. Why? Pleased as man with man to dwell. For the joy set before me, I endure the cross. God, the love with which you have loved me, love them. That's why this song, man, it's this call to freedom of not only did he give me peace, right? But he delights in me. It's like the difference when you talk about people and like he loves me and he likes you. Even if, even if. Let's look at the third stanza. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Here's that key thesis. Here's that key theme. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king, as we look at this theme and now we see its emphasis, born that man no more may die. The third reason this comes is, yes, there's peace. Yes, he delights in you. He's pleased to do it. It's his pleasure. But the third is, this is his purpose. It's his purpose. You have to remember where we were, right? Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. He lays aside his glory embraces humanity and came that you and I would no longer be marked by death. He 
He came to raise the sons of earth, came to give a second birth. That's the thing. Like Christians, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't become a better version of yourself, right? You become a new version of yourself, right? You go from dead spiritually to alive. His purpose is that you and I, we wouldn't know death like that. And then I love the part where he says before, because this is the theme of abundant life. And this is the part where, man, we so shortchange this next part. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. The song tells you that Jesus Christ, his purpose, part of the reason he was born that man no more may die is not just eternal death, but it's abundant life here. And he promises three things, light, life, healing. John 10, 9 through 11, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Go in and come out and find pasture. But the thief came only to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not only did Jesus come that people would be saved, they'd come in and find pasture. But he came knowing that you and I, we have a tendency to go our own way. There's a way that seems right to us, but it always ends in death. That's why when I try to do what I want apart from the will of God, sometimes it starts well, always, 100% accuracy, always ends painful. And that's where Jesus, he came, he says, no, there is one that will lead you away. A thief came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then what does he say? I've come that you may have life, and you may have it abundantly. He's speaking to this reality where you sincerely love God. You don't just know it, but you do it. Like repentance to you is not a chore. Like the Christmas season is not a have to. It's a, he came for me. And you know he wants you to have that. You know he wants you to not just have eternal life, but life here that's legitimately different. One where you're marked by peace, not just constant stress. One where you are a disciple maker in your family. You don't just hope your kids look back on you when they get to college and say, man, I'm grateful for them. One where you sincerely love your neighbor in a way to where your street knows you're different. That you don't walk the way the world does. You walk the way Christ did. An abundant life, you know he wants that for you because of the cost at which he went to get it. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd right after that. And then he describes the cost that our abundant life would come at. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His purpose was to come and not only reconcile man and sinner, but his purpose was to come and give you light to bring light to the parts of you that you don't think God will change, to bring light to the reality of, yeah, maybe you're back at church or you've been gone from it or, or church has hurt you or God is distant. He can bring light to anything. The trauma of the past, the difficulty of your marriage, the fact you think you'll fail college, the reality that you don't have the finances to make it, the truth that you've gone through life generally just being a good person and you patted yourself on the back for it. And now when you really self-examine you, your family and those around you, it's godless, yet with Southern morality attached to it. Light. Life, it's meant to be this sense of abundance. It's like a fountain that's meant to overflow. 
Like, does Christmas bring true in you, like, peace and joy? Like, the hope of when you come into, like, a dark room and you turn on the light and you can see it and there's that sense of safety and peace. Has God turned that light on? Healing. What about the parts of you that you just think are chronically broken? That you think this won't mend, this won't fix, there's no cure for this. There's just, this is just how it is, and you have embraced this mindset that's completely devoid of a repentance by faith. And the theme of redemption, light, life, healing. Born that man no more may die. His purpose was coming. Guys, we've seen how this song, it's this call to remind you, to remind me that why he came. He came to give you life, life abundant. There's a joy and there's a peace to it. He came that man no more may die. Yes, in a relationship with him. If you do not know Jesus Christ, he wants you to understand the truth of Christmas. If you've grown up around this like Charles and John Wesley, but you're just confused and it's distant and it's far off and honestly, you don't know if any of this is true, then come. Believe in him by faith. It transforms the soul, changes the man, changes the woman, changes the family. And those who know the peace of Christ, that he was pleased to die on our behalf, it's been his purpose from the beginning, and because of him, death has changed in my life. That is why we sing. So pray with me while the band comes up and we sing Hark the Herald one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, what it means for us and how you've come to set us free. God, I'd ask that you'd do that. I'd ask that you would make Christmas this theme of hope and joy that as we come to sing this song, we would lean in with the reality of, of why Charles wrote, hey, you must listen with the angels Glory to God in the heaven. Why? Peace on earth with those with whom he is well pleased. By faith in you, you are pleased in us. May that be true of every soul coming through here. Those who know you, may we grow in the love. Those who don't know you, would you transform? Would you change? May we see that the pain of this life, the difficulty, the sin, the realities of sin, the grave, and hell no longer have to mark us. You can be what marks us. It's why you came. You were born that man no more may die. You brought light into darkness. You want us to have a new life and with new life, healing and redemption to where we become for your glory, a city on a hill, not a moderately bored, engaged, morally sound group of people that gathers on Sunday, but your church, your strength, your people, your plan A to save the world. We don't want to settle for anything less. May this song be that reminder. May we come, may we sing, and may we listen.